Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. They're the best four words that any man could hear. I knew you'd come. <laughs> Are you looking to take your gimmick from broken to woken? Well, lucky for you. This episode of The Extreme Life of Matt Hardy is brought to you by Blue Chew. I know a lot of wrestling fans have plenty of bravado when it comes to sharing opinions on Twitter. But what about when it comes to stepping up to the plate in the bedroom? That's where Blue Chew comes in. Blue Chew is a unique online service that delivers the same active ingredients as Viagra and Cialis. But it comes in chewable tablets at a fraction of the cost. Now, if you're like me and you're always on the road or you're at work at different hours every day, no problem. You can take them on a moment's notice. And then what do you know? Things are about to get extreme. And the process is incredibly easy. Sign up at bluechew.com and consult with one of their licensed medical providers. Once you're approved, you'll receive your prescription within days. And all of those confidence problems will soon become obsolete the best part is it's all done online you don't have to go to the doctor you don't have to wait in line at the pharmacy and you can spend your free time creating poetry in motion rather than having awkward conversations about your ladder breaking before you can get it set up bluetooth tablets are made in the usa and prepared and shipped direct to your door in a discreet package House Hardy has grown in size quite a bit over the years. That's because I know the importance of taking the twist of fate into your own hands rather than letting yourself become a whisper in the wind. V1 of your sex life may not have been great, but V2 can be. So if you could benefit from extra confidence when it's time to perform, Blue Chew can help. And we've got a special deal for our listeners. Try Blue Chew free when you have our promo code HARDY at checkout. Just pay $5 shipping. That's BlueChew.com promo code HARDY to receive your first month free. Visit BlueChew.com for more details and important safety information. And we thank you, Blue Chew, for sponsoring our podcast. Yeah! Spoken on episode three of the extreme life of Matt Hardy. We are broadcasting from the Blue Chew Studios. Try Blue Chew free when you use our promo code Hardy at checkout. Just pay $5 shipping. I, of course, am John Alba, joined once again, as I am every single week, by Big Money Matt. 
authentically Matt Hardy. What's good, my man? How are you? Uh, it's a great day to be Matt Hardy. Every day is a great day to be Matt Every Hardy. Every day. Who am I kidding? And it's a great day to be here talking about one of our most famous matches ever, the Royal Rumble 2000 tables match with the Dudleys. We did some more groundbreaking on that day. Kind of a general theme with the Hardy boys, a lot of groundbreaking stuff that we'll get into over the course of the next calendar year here on the extreme life of Matt Hardy. But first, I want to remind everyone, if you haven't already, subscribe to the extreme life of Matt Hardy, wherever you get your podcasts, Apple, Spotify, YouTube, Matt Hardy brand, wherever you do it, leave us a five star review because you might even get some incentives out of it this week, Matt, we actually sent out a really cool prize to one of our listeners. We did. It was to uh, Luis Mendez, and uh, he's been a longtime Hardy fan, I know. He got an autographed 8 by 10 for me, Matt Hardy, version one, big money Matt, broken Matt, whatever you want to call me, one half of the Hardy boys. And he got a personalized video. And if you continue to leave all these five-star ratings, you can continue to put up screenshots. You never know. You might just get a tweet where you get a personalized video for me too. I'm going to look and I might do something at random going forward. Ooh, okay. That, this is breaking news to me and I like it. I, I like the sound of that because if you guys haven't figured it out by now, we are so appreciative of all the support that you guys have given the extreme life of Matt Hardy. We climbed the charts so quickly. And Matt, this is our first time getting to tape an episode since we dropped the podcast. And yes. for me, at least, I know I've been so overwhelmed by the words we've been given from people. I have to. I mean, I am so grateful for all the amazing feedback. And something that's kind of been the motto of myself and my brother during our pro wrestling career is like, without you, there would be no us. And same thing goes for the extreme life of Matt Hardy. Without you uh, subscribing to us, without you tuning in each and every week, without you supporting us, without you uh, you know, lifting us up and, and, and telling your friends, how much you enjoy the podcast, there would be no us. So thank you all very much. We are very appreciative. And you had a chance to listen back to episode two about Hangman Adam Page. Looking back on that, how did you feel about it? And what are the vibes you got on Hangman here? Uh, I, I'll tell you, I was uh, very proud of our cowboy shit episode, if that's something that we would uh, kind of label it as. Uh, I thought it was good. I am such a such an enjoyer of the work hangman adam page has done and is currently doing and i think this the sky's the limit for him i think he is going to go so far in the industry and he's going to be such a big deal and i'm really proud of him because like at his core too he's just a very good decent guy who busts his ass and works hard and also we share a similar background so that makes it even a little more special and personal i had such a good time recording that in person with you that that night i that stayed until five in the morning coming up with topics for the rest of the year and we got our <laughs> whole year mapped out so i oh i'm so excited so you're killing it john i, I love it man you're oh, working I, overtime and, I, and it's I, great to have someone who's willing to do the work so thank you will big matt big money matt be paying the overtime or is overtime part of the big money matt like the hfo well, yeah. or well sure i'll make sure you get some overtime from our bosses but you're going to owe me a 30% a we fee. Gotcha. Comprehensive benefits package, 401k, all that of stuff. Course. Okay. Good. That's what I, I mean. As we'd said before, you were talking about a theme with myself and my brother with the Hardy boys, as far as being groundbreakers, you know, we are pioneers that drove the business into new frontiers. And I just thought of that right now. And I had to say it. <laughs> <laughs> Let's get a t-shirt. Pioneers. Box. 
boxagimmicks.com guys by the way boxagimmicks.com you get your matt hardy merchandise the extreme life of matt hardy we got sweatshirts we got t-shirts mugs all that good stuff matt just got his package today as we record this so we'll start to see some of those next few weeks do you like the red do you like the black you have a favorite uh, I am historically kind of a uh, a black t-shirt wearing guy, but I do like red. I I, I do have a little favoritism towards red. Mm-hmm. If you take away black as a color, I would say red would be my next choice. So you'll probably see me rocking the black and the red very soon, probably next week. We got to get you a mesh one just to make it apropos for the Hardy Boys. And just... yeah, we'll have to. Well, I'll have to wear that in a throwback episode <laughs> where we talk about the brooding Hardy Boys. Yes, well, we're talking about the Royal Rumble 2000 here on episode three of The Extreme Life of Matt Hardy, which, of course, went down January 23rd, 2000 at the world-famous Madison Square Garden. This was nearly 22 years ago, Matt. How insane is that? It is pure insanity. I mean, in some ways, it does feel like 22 years ago because it was a lifetime ago, but then also in some ways, it feels like it was two years ago it feels like it was very recent because i still remember that night and that day and being in madison square garden having this amazing platform and being able to go out and make history especially under a lot of strange circumstances as you guys and gals will learn as we continue to to delve into this episode uh it it was an amazing day and i remember it very vividly so in that capacity it seems like it was a couple years ago well the most over part of this show so far has been the return of the Matt facts. So I'm ready for Matt fact number three here, buddy. What do you got for us? Matt fact, Matt has broken 345 tables during his pro wrestling career. That is the first appearance of broken Matt on this podcast. And that <laughs> makes me so excited because I know that we're far from done with that. We have a very special March and April planned for the fans of oh the extreme God. life of Matt Hardy. So be on the lookout for that. People are going to love it, John. 345 tables. Part of me thinks you're working me. And the other half of me is like, you know what? This guy is such a psychopath that he probably knows how many tables he's actually broken. I, I honestly think the number's undercut. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I think I undercut the number. We're probably closer to 400. Well, this is, of course, the inaugural tag team tables match in WWF against the world-famous Dudley Boys. The Dudley Boys, Bubba Ray and Devon Dudley, make their way to WWF in August of 1999 after famously being denied a $1 raise by Paul Heyman to stay in ECW because Paul was allegedly working on a talent supply chain with Vince McMahon already. So when did you first hear of the Dudleys and see their work And what was your impression of them in ECW upon them coming to WWF? I mean, I was very aware of the Dudleys early on because uh, being in the pro wrestling business, uh, one thing I tell young guys is like make pro wrestling a lifestyle. If you're going to do it, you got to do it right. You got to train right. You got to eat right. You got to sleep right. You got to take care of your body in the right way. You've got to train and and work out, but you also have to know the product. So not only the company that you work for or want to work for, you need to know all the companies across the industry. So obviously we got ECW uh, very late at night on the MSG network, which we happen to have. It was 12, 1 a.m. So myself and my brother, we would always watch that or we would, you know, try and pop in a VHS tape and record it with the VCR. And I definitely knew the Dudleys. And I remember thinking like, wow, these guys are very good at being hills because the stuff they would do to go out there and get heat. And there were a lot of times they would almost incite many riots in, in, in the uh, in the venue. So I knew they, they were a special team in that capacity because like the most important thing we can do as a pro wrestler 
you know, it doesn't make, really make a difference if they if they cheer you or they boo you, as long as they they care about you, as long as they are emotionally attached and they are able to react to you in a certain way. And they were definitely getting reactions as far as inciting people's uh, anger. Were you guys picking out tag teams from around the industry at this point of who you'd like to work with? We, we, we definitely had, you know, we, we, we made notes of all the teams that we really liked, who we thought would be great matches to have down the road. And, and absolutely, the Dudley boys were on that list. This is not just a major time for ECW in terms of change. The wrestling landscape is drastically shifting. You guys in WWF are clearly going to win the Monday Night War at this point, and you're about to pick up some major acquisitions. This from the Wrestling Observer Newsletter. WCW sent unconditional release letters to Chris Benoit, Dean Simon, Dean Malenko, Carlos Ashinoff, Conan, Troy Martin, Shane Douglas, Eddie Guerrero, and Perry Satulo, which, of course, Perry Saturn, thus canceling the plan meeting Bill Bush had agreed two days later to have with the group in that same day, allowing them to start with Titan Sports on February 1st, provided they agreed not to say anything publicly disparaging about WCW and not to sue them. Lots of talent in that group of names. We know not all of them end up coming over to you guys, but the Radicals do. Eddie Guerrero, Chris Benoit, Dean Malenko, Perry Saturn. What's the buzz about these guys coming in, and did you guys have your eyes set on any of them? There, there was a, a lot of buzz on those guys coming in, without a doubt. And we were buddies with Jericho at this point uh, because we were close to the, all, all around the same age. And he was very familiar with all those guys, and he had great things to say about them. And it was funny. We had met uh, Chris Benoit, like, uh, I don't know, a, a few weeks earlier, whenever there was an event where there was a pay-per-view. I want to say it was Toronto, if I'm not mistaken. If my memory serves me correct. In Toronto, they had a pay-per-view, and we had a house show, and they were staying at the hotel across from us. And we actually went over there to see if, like, Scott Hall or Kevin Nash were there and just, like, tell them what's up. Or, and, I, and I think we ran into Scott Hall, but we actually saw Chris Benoit and he'd been at the bar uh, hitting it pretty hard that night. And our first interactions with him were very, very funny. I remember him sitting in a chair and Adam and Jay, they knew him because they'd worked with him. Obviously, they're Canadian ties and they had worked with him uh, in the past. And I remember they like said, you know, hey, what's going on, Chris? How you doing? He's like, oh, hey, how are you? How are you? And I remember he's, Adam and Jay said, these are Matt and Jeff, the Hardys. You know, we worked with them a lot, whatever. And he'd saw our ladder match. He's like, yeah, I, I love what you're doing. He said, fuck yeah, fuck yeah. He said, I will see you soon. I remember he said, I will see you soon. He put his fist out like that. And I stuck my fist out, like gave him a fist bump. And he said, wham, and hit my horse. Fuck. And I remember Jeff like stuck his fist out and then like he was kind of pulling it back as Chris was going to do it because he was in that zone where he had, he was, uh, he was pretty tuned up and drinking and he was like an intense individual. You know, when he, when he was just normal and quiet, he was very much a sweetheart and quiet and to himself. But whenever he got, uh, whenever he got tuned up a little bit, he was, uh, he was intense. Chris Benoit, probably the most polarizing figure in wrestling history for obvious reasons. And yes, maybe at some point we'll talk about that here on this podcast. But I think it's really interesting that he gave you a little insight there that he was coming and that he was heading there with some of his buddies. So that gave you guys just a totally stacked lineup of a roster at that point. Now, there was... Go ahead. I'll never forget, John, when, whenever they showed up in Pittsburgh, it was a big moment. And I'm sure you probably remember watching whenever they showed up on the front row. I remember we were there like we saw them at the hotel. We're like, oh, man, it's happening. You know, they're here. It's it's official. They're all coming. And there's the four, these four because we knew some guys were coming, but we didn't know how many because we knew several yeah. guys had gotten their release. So it ended up being that, 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 that like core group of four. And Dean Malenko, someone you get to work with in AEW right now. He's a coach there and I'm sure he's invaluable. Yeah. 
he's great. Dean Dean's the best. I got, I got to work with him in, in an angle back in the day too, which was so much fun. Yes. So enjoyable. That was good stuff. Now, around this time, there was a poll from iyata.com. And for those of you who don't remember the glorious age of early 2000s internet, uh, Iyata was kind of a pioneer that saw celebrities and broadcasters hosting daily online talk radio. It seems like something Matt Hardy would have been all over a few years later had it sustained <laughs> itself. But there was an interesting poll from it. And it asked, what was the greatest ladder match of all time in wrestling? Was it Shawn Michaels versus Razor? Shawn Michaels versus Razor 2, The Rock versus Triple H, your match against Edge and Christian that we just talked about in episode one, or Jeff Jarrett versus Chris Benoit. And interestingly enough, you guys come in second place, even as that ladder match is just a few months prior to this. Were you yeah. guys aware at this point how historic your ladder match was? I don't think so. I, I, I think we knew it was special and we knew it helped put us on the map, but we didn't realize the historical significance it was going to have going forward. And, and it's one of those things like I was talking to, to Bubba earlier today and, you know, with our TLC matches, you know, we, we set such a high bar right from the jump. He says like sometimes when he watches other people, they're trying to do different things or, you know, uh, more creative or more crazy, whatever. He says, it's just hard to top those matches. And I said, more importantly, I feel like it's hard to top this matches because we did it first. And when you're in that position where you do it first and it sets this major precedent, I mean, that's always going to hold a very special place in people's hearts and minds, much like the first ever ladder match between Sean and Razor. I mean, that people, that match is beloved and it holds a very special place in people's hearts and minds. And that's why it was going to be very hard for our tag team ladder match, even though technically it was better and more exciting, especially by today's standards, to overcome that original ladder match that really set the trend. And for those of you who are subscribed to us on video, Matt Hardy brand, we just got a little house Hardy running. From, yeah, I just from saw Wolfie. that was uh, Lord Wolfgang. That was, that was good stuff there. And, and we love the house Hardy here. Hopefully we get to do an episode just on the house Hardy. I would love to do that at some point. I'm sure we will. Yeah. Little yeah, Barty yeah. Hardy is going to be the next Paul Heyman of pro wrestling. He's got chops unlike anybody I've ever seen. So, so. It just turned two. He's, he's legitimately 24 months old. And uh, it, it's so funny how all their personalities are so, so different. It's so amazing. Being a dad is, is the best gig ever. And it's a, a very tough and off uh, time-consuming and stressful job, but it's also the most rewarding job ever. That's awesome. So let's continue on our path here in the Wrestling Observer Newsletter Awards for 1999. And the Observer Awards are pretty well-respected within the industry. Jeff yeah. comes in 10th overall for most outstanding wrestler in the world, even gets a first-place vote. Chris Benoit did win that. Jeff comes in fourth for most improved, second for best high flyer behind Hooventude, seventh for most underrated. The Swanton Bomb is named the second best finisher in wrestling, and he plays his top 10 for fans' choice. Were you cognizant of how quickly Jeff was rising the ranks in the public eye at this time for wrestling fans? I certainly realized, especially uh, via live audiences, how beloved and how popular he was. And I, I, I know together we were doing real well, but like on, on his own, even like those awards, like I wasn't aware of that, as I'd said in the past, like I wasn't an observer guy. And once I started working with WWE on a full-time basis, I mean, it was like, go, go, go nonstop. I, uh, I really, did, I don't even think I followed any of the, the newsletters that closely, but I know, especially looking back now, and it's so impactful in this day and age in 2022, Dave Melcher has always been the leader at the forefront of the newsletters. So those polls that he's done always, they, they hold a lot of weight in a lot of people's 
minds and and uh, and and uh, hearts. So for Jeff to have ranked that high, I was not aware of that until you told me that information. So that that is very cool. But Jeff Jeff was killing it, and he was he's a very very special athlete, a very very unique and special athlete that is the definition of having the it factor. I've gotten to know you pretty well, and I know that you're a very selfless person, but. I would be remiss if I didn't ask this. Was there a little bit of competitive drive that was brought out from you at that time when you see how over your brother's game, you guys are both massively over as a yeah. unit, but Jeff is clearly recognized here as the guy that could be, we yes. talked about in episode one, Shawn Michaels caliber performer. Did that yes. bring out a little something in you personally? You know, I think in, in all honesty, being absolutely, Absolutely transparent. Back in those days, there there were times where I had that realization, and it, it probably did. It probably drove me to work harder, or be better, or be different in other ways. And I would probably, back in those days, let it get to me time to time. You know, like oh, you know, why is it him? I do this, and I'm the one that puts everything together behind the scenes. You know, but he gets more of the credit, even though if he's not the brains behind the operation. Uh, but I, I also remember very vividly whenever we got a chance to split. And I was no longer going to be one of the Hardy Boys, which was like the uh, adrenaline junkies or the daredevils or the people that do all the extreme stuff, the stuntmen. Once I was going to get away from that and I had pitched the whole Matt Hardy version one concept and they were willing to go with it and, get, and give me some creative input in it. And I felt very good about where I was at. And I was like, I'm going to get a chance to shine on my own. And I know there were a lot of people that thought like, oh, now that they're separated, Matt's going to fade away. And, and I ended up getting more over the Jeff at that time, especially because Jeff was also in kind of a dark place in his life. And he had to like, kind of hit the reset button to kind of get his life back on track too. So back in the day when we first started getting over huge and he became like the big standout star of the Hardy boys. Yeah. I think I was a little bothered about that, but I think it was also a great learning lesson for me because I have realized in my life, there are going to be things that affect you and you have to understand how to deal with them, you know, to continue moving forward in life. It doesn't mean someone's right or someone's wrong or someone's better or someone's worse. You know, perception is a thing and you always have to play to whatever your strengths may be. And I realized that there, I was very happy to work for the greater good, which was the Hardy Boys succeeding together. If Jeff could go out and do the Swantons and the Whisper in the Winds and whatever crazy hotspot he would do and the people loved it and it even made him more over in their eyes. But I was the guy that was kind of putting... The, the match structure together and making sure we had a, a, a solid fundamental match as well as these amazing hotspots. I felt rewarded for being able to do that. And I know it was very important when we were together, like the team and something Jeff said in the first video he did when uh, he just recently got released from WWE. And he said, you know, I am the whisper in the wind. I am the swan time, but without you, there's no poetry in motion. And he kind of said that as an analogy, but he also said like, we're just so much better together because we help each other so much in so many different ways. We're so much stronger as a unit. And I, I totally agree with that. And I said to you, when I was pitching this show to you, and I've said it on all the media yes. interviews I've done, that I connected with you because I felt like you were the secret sauce to the Hardy Boys. I, I use that analogy a lot. Like I think of Van Halen. I don't know if you're a Van Halen fan, but Michael Anthony, the bassist yes. with the high-pitched back of vocals, that's so crucial to the Van Halen sound. And while Eddie Van Halen was the one that people were paying all the money to see, without Michael Anthony in the band, it's just not Van Halen, with all due respect to Wolfgang Van Halen. Sure. Um, so, so I just thought that you and me growing up as a fan, that you were that, that secret sauce. And then when you broke out on your own, it became apparent, yeah, he was. So <laughs> I, I bring that all up because as we're going to dive into this feud, Mm -hmm. I feel like you are trying to go out of your way 
to stand out in this feud. You do some crazy shit in this feud <laughs> that it's like, I got to match what Jeff is doing. Right. And, and I'm curious if that was cognizant or not. And I guess we'll find out as we dive through this. Why don't we? So right we're, we're turning the new year out of 1999. At what point do you find out that you guys are going to start working with the Dudleys consistently? I know there was an idea for us to work with them after they, they did a few things uh, in WWE. Just, and I feel like when they first came to WWE, to WWE, WWF at the time, I feel like they were kind of like, they, they did some stuff with the Acolytes, did some stuff with a couple of other teams, and they almost had to kind of like make sure, uh, earn their keep, make sure they were going to fit in with the locker room. They kind of got, they, they got tested. They got, uh, they, they, they definitely got the, you're brand new. We're going to check you out and see what you're made of and see if you're going to be here for the long haul. And then I feel like whenever they worked with us, that was the first time the company said, okay, these guys are okay. We're going to trust them to have a rivalry with one of our established tag teams. And it ended up being myself and my brother. And we were pretty excited about that. And I know that I had pitched for a, and I did for a table match. The latter match obviously is something myself and Jeff did on the Indies. And I knew if the two of us worked with Edge and Christian that we could kill it in a, a tag team ladder match, which ultimately we know, and that is history. But with the Dudleys, and I told Michael Hayes, I remember saying, like, in ECW, their whole gimmicks were, was, were tables, more than anything. They would put people through tables, flaming tables, uh, but tables was their thing. And, and they really, that was attached to the Dudley boys' name, tables, breaking tables. And I said, considering we had this ladder match, what if we did something where we fought these guys in what is, in theory, their own match, a tables match? And we could have a really outstanding, uh, really exciting, outstanding match, because that's another thing that we incorporated in those surge will the wisp matches as well we broke tables we would go through tables all the time on the independent scene so that's where the first 100 of those 345 tables came from those are probably, 100, probably 150 <laughs> well, i think that what needs to be said when we're talking about this breakout for the dudleys is that the tag team scene in the wwf at this time is loaded we're talking about you guys edge and christian the acolytes a couple of weeks ago, we mentioned the Rock and Sock connection. We're going the Hollies, too cool. Who, if you watch this pay per view, are maybe the most overact on this entire show. Too cool, were great. They were great, and they were both both Scotty and Brian were super talented, and they were really really over when they got over. Did you ever take a stink face? Many times, okay. many times. Uh, I, I'll be honest. The very first time I took a stink face, I was like, "Oh my god, like what is this going to be like?" It smelled like. Uh, um oh my god like uh baby powder it just like rikishi like if, if you were a guy he liked he would make sure to be super clean for you it was like baby powder it was it was actually uh it was it was very easy and and not rough at all it was so, delightful even <laughs> <laughs> so rikishi baby powdered his ass if he liked you if he didn't like you we've heard rumors that may young used to put like dirty fish in her uh undergarments for matches did, did rikishi yeah. pull any ribs like that uh he he may have i'm sure he was he ran with that that crew he was one of takers guys too uh so i'm sure if it was someone who had a little heat or someone he didn't didn't like as much i'm sure it would uh have a different scent to it without a doubt and and may young she was she was a she was a hell of a river man she was a, a filthy disgusting individual she was a <laughs> woman who acted like a man so i'm sure she did all that i know she did all that mm. We'll talk about Mae Young later in this episode because there's some good stuff from her, uh, if you want to call it that. We've all heard the saying, right? New year, new me. 
Sometimes you set your resolution high, like maybe buying a new car or a new house. Others, they just want to try to eat healthy. So I'm here to tell you about a great way that you can do that. I'm, of course, talking about Magic Spoon. You see, growing up, cereal was one of the best parts of being a kid, but I knew that I kind of had to give all that up when I realized how much sugar and junk that you really shouldn't be putting into your body. Here's the good news. Magic Spoon changes the game in that regard. Zero grams of sugar, 13 to 14 grams of protein, and only four net grams of carbs in each serving. It's only 140 calories per serving as well. And I know we're about all the trends. It's keto-friendly, gluten-free, grain-free, soy-free, and low-carb. Beauty is it also comes in a variety pack. If you want four flavors, cocoa, fruity, frosted, and peanut butter. It's all summoning to those great foods of your youth. It tastes exactly like it, but it's super nutritious. All you got to do to get your hands on this stuff, go to magicspoon.com forward slash party to grab a variety pack and try it today. And be sure to use our promo code hardy at checkout. You get to save $5 off of your order. And Magic Spoon is so confident in its product that it's all backed with a 100% happiness guarantee. So if you don't like it for any reason, they'll refund your money, no questions asked. Remember, get your next delicious bowl of guilt-free cereal at magicspoon.com slash hardy and use the code hardy to save $5 off. And we thank Magic Spoon for sponsoring this episode. And on the last number, 65084, Equal Housing Lender. Christmas is finally behind us, but are you dreading those credit card bills headed your way? Well, here's a pro tip. Don't get stuck making minimum payments in the new year. Savewithconrad.com can help you get rid of your credit card debt just like that. Oh, and we're going to get you the best deal on a mortgage you've ever had. But how's this for starters? No payments until March. You don't need money out of your pocket or perfect credit. So find out how much money you can save for free right now at savewithconrad.com. But we continue the build here. So January 4, 2000, it's a SmackDown episode. Jeff teams with Edge and Christian to defeat the Dudley Boys and Al Snow. This is kind of the first TV integration of these teams together. You're not in that match, but it's clear that something is going to come. From- I had actually I had actually just got injured, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, and, and I'm sure some people realize this, like my right eye, especially if I'm tired. Sometimes my vision to my right side like is almost like a little blurry or double vision, especially if I'm tired or haven't slept well. Because back then, just a few weeks before, right around Christmas time, it was a match where uh, I was on the opposite side of Christian and he drop kicked me. And whenever he came down from the drop kick, I had bumped and the toe of his the the toe of his boot went right into my eye Ooh. and it broke my nose, my cheek, and my orbital bone. And that's one of those things where you should have probably been off six to eight weeks for. I literally took one weekend of house shows off and then I was back on the road work. So I am pretty positive. I was injured at that time is why I wasn't involved in that match at all. That's why it went down the way it did. So everything we're talking about on this episode, you were injured for. I mean, yeah, I, I, I had been injured uh, in uh, Christmas of that year. Yeah. So uh, this, everything we're going to talk about is about a month from Christmas. So there's no way you were completely healthy after that. That's pretty crazy especially working with tables. I mean, yeah. That, welcome. Uh, welcome to the life of a professional wrestler in the eighties and nineties, the extreme life. So 
they get that win. And I like that you guys are still teaming with Edge and Christian at that point too, because we're building off that ladder match story that we're telling. And uh, I guess what we, I can say this now during the course of this coming spring, we're also going to tell the full story of 2000. So it's kind of started with the 99 No Mercy ladder match into the Royal Rumble. We're going to get into No Way Out, into WrestleMania 2000, into SummerSlam. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to telling because that all seems like a very cohesive thing that kind of came together. Yeah, it very much is. I mean, it actually is a whole bunch of small stories built into one one story that has continuity. So yeah. it, it is a cool deal. It One, one thing leads into another and, and builds upon itself. So January 8th and 9th, you guys run back-to-back house shows of triple threat elimination tag matches with the Hardys, the Dudleys, and Edge and Christian. These are the first of many, many three-ways between you guys over the years. The Dudleys win both of these. Do you have any recollection of these matches? You mentioned on the No Mercy episode that you got so much steam from the house show matches that you were working with Edge and Christian that that helped you get the leverage for the ladder match that you needed. So did these matches help you get that tables match that you pitched? I, I don't think so. I don't think they really made a difference in, in getting the tables match, but I know we did that match, uh, just a regular standard standard triple threat match, uh, Hardys versus ENC versus the Dudleys so many times, so, so many times. And that was probably the first times we were doing it. And I remember we enjoyed the match. It changed the pace a little bit and also the game plan because myself and Jeff and Edge and Christian were viewed as baby faces then. And they were the Hill team. So the match slowed down a lot, but that wasn't a bad thing too. I think it was okay because there would be the Dudleys getting heat on either, you know, Jay or, or Jeff typically in the match, but they were, they were really good matches. And we obviously had a, a very good chemistry, all three teams together because we, we continue to go on and do so many groundbreaking things. I was just going to ask, what is it like finding chemistries with an opponent for the first time? Because you have so many matches with these guys, but these are the very first that you're having. Is it a feeling out process? kind of i mean some some guys just work better together than, than others do i mean the, 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 there's like no real formula as far as like what makes chemistry work i mean some guys are just so super talented i think sean michaels was a great example of this he could get into the ring and he could work with l- literally anybody and still make it good because he was that good you know he would like just make the quality of the match come up because he was so talented on his own and he was also very smart from a you know psychology standpoint i think if you find a guy who will work with you and they're like-minded. I think that's what was the biggest, uh, the biggest factor in myself and Jeff and Edge and Christian having such great chemistry because we were all very like-minded and then we worked in similar styles. So just like working together, it was just easy. It was just like natural. And that's like the chemistry. Sometimes if you work with someone that isn't like-minded like you and you have a different working style, it's just a clash of working styles. And that is when there isn't chemistry. So you, you never really know, but I would say that the, the biggest the biggest thing I would attribute to having chemistry with someone is just both having individuals that are like-minded and willing to work for the same goal and are selfless. When you have selfless individuals, that's when you get your best content. Which tag team, whether it's of these two or in general, would you guys say you had the most chemistry off the bat with like right away? Edge and Christian. Edge and Christian. Christian. No. Edge and Christian. Not a surprise. Also, also to the, the young bucks would be, uh, would also be very much in that conversation. I Totally believe that as well. So yes. you guys have those, and wow. we continue to trudge on here. It's January 16th, you guys lose to the New Age Outlaws in a tag match at the Continental Airlines Arena in Jersey, the Meadowlands. 
I thought this was so fascinating because you guys drew 18,782 fans, a legit sellout on a standard Sunday house show. This is non-televised. So what is it like being in title matches on shows at this point that are just house? They're, they're not on TV. You guys are going out and selling out every single place you're going. I mean, it, it was fun. House shows were such a, uh, a fun environment in that, in that day and age because there wasn't the stress of TV. There wasn't the time restraints of television as well. You could go out and you could do a lot more, you know, you could do a lot more Gaga. You could do a lot more uh, character-driven personality stuff. They, they were just fun. And it was a great place to go out and try things as far as different interactions and combinations, as far as like athletic moves and, and spots and whatnot, and learn to either keep them or, or get rid of them, you know, and you can utilize them later on TV if you want to. So that was one of the greatest benefits about house shows. And one of the things about, WWE at that time. I mean, it was just so white hot. We would do 10 days on and four days off, you know, like in 98, 99, going into 2000. And just every night was sold out. Business was so incredibly hot. I mean, it was just every night was a sellout. And it didn't make a difference if it was Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, or Sunday. Every arena we would go to would be sold out and the crowds would just be rabid. And they would be so excited to just watch pro wrestling and react to it. But it was just such an amazing time in wrestling. Do you have any memories, not necessarily from this era, but in general, of the IZOD Center, the Continental Airlines Arena, the Meadowlands Arena? Because that was like my childhood arena. I went to so many yeah. events there. Any stand out to you? Yeah, I do. I, I, I loved going to that arena. They were always really good. I feel like in Connecticut, they would be a little harder. Uh, sometimes at the Garden, they would be amazing. Sometimes it would be a little more difficult. There, there were places, as I've talked about in the past a little bit, like Cleveland, Pittsburgh, they would they would be a little bit of a tougher crowd. Long Island, Nassau Coliseum would sometimes be a tougher crowd. But the Meadowlands was typically always pretty lively. But my maybe fondest backstage memory in the Meadowlands, and I just tweeted about it with Scotty Tuhati the other day. We were going back and forth on an inside joke. And that was the fact that we were there one time and we were working too cool at a house show. And uh, myself and Jeff, we'd like walked in a room and I think Scotty was there too. And we were just going to clarify with Brian that like, we're kind of just doing the same deal. Brian was the, the main vet. So he kind of had the, you know, the, the final say in all the matches. Brian Christopher had been around in the business the longest and he'd been in there playing uh, some sort of card game with Lake Taker and Kishi and all those guys. And I guess he had lost and they got into some little bit of an argument and like, he was very frustrated and angry because I think he just got chewed out. And I remember saying, Hey man, uh, same deal tonight. We're doing this. Yeah. He said, just remember, just grab me to that swing and DDT and then you go for the deal. And I was like, I've never done this spot with you in our life, Brian. <laughs> He's like, whatever, your brother, you know who I'm talking about. And I said, yeah, it's my brother. He did it every night. I said, so cool. We'll just do that. Then he said, I'm not in a very good mood right now. And then he like stomped out of the room all of a sudden angry. And it was just, and he like was, he overacted so much. It was so dramatic. And like Scotty, Scotty, Scotty and I, Scott Garland and I, we'll talk about that all the time. I'm not in a very good mood right now. Just like if someone hits you with a, a line and, and you want to comically laugh it off. I don't want to talk about that. I'm not in a very good mood right now. <laughs> so that is one of my fondest memories from the Meadowlands because we had such a great laugh about that. I'm going to have to put that down in my notes. So if I can pop you, uh, you, you send me your big long soliloquy text. And I'm just going to say, I'm not in a really good mood right now. And get back to you after that. That's great stuff. And we lost Brian way too early. And it's such a sad story, but I, I love hearing stories like that. So that's really special. Uh, let's continue here, Matt.
You mentioned Connecticut. Well, the day after you're in Connecticut. On Raw, January 17th, Jeff beats Bubba in two minutes and 46 seconds with the senton. Jeff, as always, doing his thing. But after the match, the Dudleys give both of you the 3D, and then Bubba power bombs you off the top rope onto Jeff through a table. So, big moment here. Bubba is doing his stare gimmick here. I think this might have actually been the debut of the staring gimmick where he would get possessed and just kind of yeah. freak out. What did you think of that whole ordeal and this segment? Uh, for us, it was just another Friday night of Omega wrestling, you know, in the big scheme of things. I mean, that's stuff that we were used to doing and we were excited to be in that environment, to be able to do stuff with ladders and tables because it was different. People weren't doing it a lot and we knew we could thrive in that environment. So yeah, we were very happy to do that angle. And we knew at that juncture that we were building to the, the tag team ladder match, uh, the tag team tables match. So uh, it was cool that we were getting a build and we were doing the angle by utilizing tables already. I think it's worth mentioning that this is only a week before the pay-per-view and we're just starting the actual build for this yeah. match right now. Is there a reason that it took so long to get the ball rolling here i mean we're, we're still we're not of, of importance i mean at vince mcmahon's company of the wwe whatever the the top like the world title match or whatever your top singles competitors are those guys are always going to have the first build and especially we were still so new at that time you know we were going to we were going to get the ladder build we weren't going to have that long story they prioritize things you know so whatever the main event was and it was triple h first mick right yes if I'm not mistaken. Well, well uh, and also it's the Royal Rumble. I feel like the Royal Rumble kind of sells itself as a pay-per-view just with the concept of the match itself. Yeah, I mean, the, the Royal Rumble was there, but I know the actual main event, and I'm the sure that main event, the that dominated, dominated the show. Correct. You know, The, the championship match is the street fight between Cactus Jack and Triple H, and then the Rumble itself is the physical main event. But those two matches together, that, that's what sells the pay-per-view. Yeah. And, and once again, considering we weren't like mainstream stars at this juncture who were like selling pay-per-views or like, you know, selling out arenas, we were happy to get a, a week's build, especially on a Raw and SmackDown. And a lot of people are watching Raw and SmackDown. So, the, so you know, we, we were definitely ha we were happy about that. The table match is made official here. And the next night taping of SmackDown, which airs later in the week, it's in Providence, Rhode Island. They show you, Jeff and Terry, walking backstage, and dude, it is just a massive reaction when they just show you guys walking. You're crazy over. It's your entrance because you're going to be facing Devon, but all the camera shots are, of course, on Terry because that's what happens, and Jerry Lawler is going nuts about Terry. I'm a little over this, but there's no doubt here, Matt, that Terry was a draw, at least for a segment of this audience here yeah, for sure she was absolutely uh uh an attraction for a percentage of the audience and that is around the time after that tag team ladder match you could really tell the difference in the reactions we were getting and, and we get to the point where jeff and i we were like rock stars you know and that's all you know whenever we'd go to hotels or restaurants whatever we started getting recognized all the time and we we're really you know on wrestling fans radar and they kind of treat us like rock stars it was like so super cool it was it was unbelievable i loved this because watching this segment was such a time capsule of that right. time because after all this stuff we get a plug for the wwf 1-800-COLLECT-SLAM-OF-THE-WEEK, which is the Dudleys putting you 
through the table on to Jeff. Uh, how many times did you call collect on the road, Matt? Zero. <laughs> I feel like that is such a bygone era service, call and collect. I just had to bring it's, that it's, up. It's, 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 it sounds otherworldly at this juncture. And then there's also a plug for the WWF Entertainment Complex, which is WWF New York. I didn't remember them calling it the WWF Entertainment Complex, but I did go to WWF New York once. It's actually where I bought my first ever piece of wrestling merchandise, which was the neon green and purple Hardy Boy shirt. I bought it in the store at WWF New York. Did you ever go to WWF New York? Many times. Um, I, I don't necessarily think we went there a lot just for like leisurely visits, but I mean, there would, there would be often we would have appearances there. And one of the worst gigs, if you remember, they would have uh, raw events where there would be like a talent at WWE New York and they would kind of like advertise like, hey, come watch the live raw and so-and-so will be there, you know, Matt Hardy or Devon Dudley or Terry Ronalds, whoever it may be. And one of the worst things is if you were out working on the road, people hated getting that gig. I remember one time that, uh, you know, I was like out on the West Coast and I did a run of house shows, you know, maybe we did Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and then I had to fly Monday to go to New York hmm. and do the do the WWF New York restaurant and appear there, whatever, and they would, you know, cut to you just for a few seconds and show you on Raw, but hey, is at the restaurant, go to WWE New York, it's cool, you never know who's going to show up, Matt Hardy's there tonight, and then Tuesday you had to get back on a plane and fly all the way back to the West Coast to do SmackDown. So just getting that WWE New York gig was one of the worst, unless you were like in that general area. Awful, and the food sucked too. It was awful. <laughs> I just remember that. That's like a standout thing for me. Well, that doesn't sound great. So I'm um, hopefully that didn't have to happen too many times for you. But you end up facing Devon here. You beat him via DQ when Bubba interferes. You guys only go like a minute and a half. How hard is it? to tell a story when you're given just a minute and a half to work. That, that's tricky for sure, because you kind of need some time to really paint a picture of what you're trying to do. And even when you told me that match was a minute and a half, I, uh, I, I didn't remember it being that short, but I would guess it was because of all of the aftermath that we did. That's probably where the majority of our time went to. And once again, Vince's mentality, and there, there, there is a little bit of, there's a little bit of truth to this too. The match really didn't make any kind of difference. Really, what we're doing in the aftermath, where we were, they were trying to put us through a table off the stage, and we were going to reverse it, put them through a table off the stage. It was to build anticipation for people to want to buy the pay per view to see this match because yeah. they, we wanted to give them an example of the craziness that we're going to see on Sunday, and we also wanted to continue to tell the story like these guys will do anything to put one another through the table. This match is going to be a spectacle you have to see. Yeah. You know, and that was the most important selling point of that match as of that night and the angle as opposed to the match. The match was really, really in the big scheme of things irrelevant. Well, Bubba killed Jeff with a chair. He hits you with the stairs. He sets you up for a powerbomb off the stage with two tables down below. But Jeff hits him with a chair and Bubba fell off the stage through a table. Then you came off the stage with an awesome leg drop. But in landing, you caught Bubba in the face with your elbow or something. And Bubba was actually busted open from something catching, whether it was you or the table splintering, something got him. And he had to go into that match with a pretty big cut. Do you have any recollection of that? I, I, I do remember that happening. Um, and I, I want to say the table caught him is what it was. I'm not 100% certain. 
but if my memory serves me correct, uh, the, the, some table called them the shrapnel of the table. But I mean, once again, when you're doing matches like that with these inanimate objects of gliders and tables, I mean, they are very dangerous and you have to be very self-aware of where you're at at all times, you know, so uh, it's easy for things to go wrong. And, you know, we're lucky we made it through that match all, uh, all extremely healthy at the end of the day, because we did a lot of crazy, insane things in the Royal Rumble tables match, uh, which we're going to talk about very shortly. The leg drop looked amazing. The way they shot Thank it you. down below was so yeah. cool. And and I was I was also able to get the ho oh, Hardy Boys thing in, and that was really established. And I, I love doing that. And that was my gig, you know. Like I always I think leg drops uh, leg drops bothered Jeff a little more than they did me. So like I, he kind of ended up giving me the leg drop. Leg drops about default. Uh, you know, he had all these cool high flying maneuvers as it was. So I was kind of like like the leg drop guy until I leg drop my pelvis and lower back out of existence, you know, years later, but it was, uh, it was very cool. And also that moment was very remembered. And it, it was when I remember me going to the top or the second and going, Oh, that became like a big over thing, you know, right around that time. So and that helped it. I'm sure. The SmackDown set lent itself to a moment like that. I, I know a lot of people look back at the fist set very fondly, but I love the old Ovaltron. It's like a very fond memory for me as a wrestling fan. Did you have a favorite set from that era? Um, yeah, that, that was cool. I mean, I, I, I feel like I, I like the majority of them. Yeah. Uh, and I'm, I'm much less picky than a lot of people are. I mean, if, if it looks good, I think I'm cool with it. And I'm all right with it. Uh, I, I do remember that being the oval set because in my mind's eye, I can envision just that shot of like Terry kind of bouncing around and me doing the whole Hardy's guns. Uh, before diving off the the stage on the divine so I, I i do like that set i like the fist set as well and you know i uh i'm i'm not too hard to please when it comes to those things that's a very peculiar thing for some people they they hold that era in a certain prism and it's a topic of debate especially as we kind of lose unique sets over time so right. it's just something that stood out to me and the other thing that stood out to me before we really dive into the match here because it's going to be a precursor for the match <sighs> So many unprotected chair shots here. And I understand that that was just kind of part of wrestling at that time. It, it just, it was, it was part of the gimmick of wrestling. You took all these unprotected chair shots, but it's really cringe to watch in hindsight. It's, uh, it's so funny. I remember talking with Bubba today and like when I look back at it, it didn't really bother me you know and I get it I get why people cringe about it because uh obviously we've learned so much about the effects of concussions in the brain and CTE about how real it is but it's just it's almost how it was back then you know when you first came in if you were getting a chair shot like to be accepted with the click not the click click but the click as far as the locker room it was almost like you had to like man up and just take a chair shot like that. That's kind of kind of just how wrestling was, especially when it transitioned from the wild, wild west days. And uh, th there's a lot of things that, that that thing in particular, and probably a lot of it stems from like the whole Chris Benoit situation and what happened and, and looking back at that. I mean, there's just a lot of things in wrestling that really affect your brain where you can get concussions very easy like that, even like a lot of regular bumps too. And, and you know, you almost have to put all that stuff in, in, in one basket if you're going to start talking about it but you know definitely the chair shots as far as not going to the head uh and and kind of like moving out of that it's something that's not necessary and it is something that does 
help protect the guys that are actually in the ring, especially for long-term injuries. So I, I'm good with not doing them. I mean, I, th- I think it's great. The, the business has evolved to that. But like looking back at that, I just, this is me, part of my personality as well. I just realized that's how the business was during that day and age. And it just doesn't, it doesn't bother me or make me sick or cringy or whatever. But I mean, I think it is a positive thing that we moved past it. We've kind of like decided to ban chair shots to the head more or less. After all these years, if you were asked to take one right now, would you? Uh, it's one of those things. I mean, probably not. I mean, just because there would be just so much. First and foremost, uh, if if I took one and bumped, I think I could take it as safe as possible. Mm-hmm. The guys that get murdered with it is it like stand there and try and look tough and no sell it. That's when it, it gets murdered. If if someone hits you with a chair shot and as soon as it hits the top of your head, if you bump and absorb it and it doesn't like blow down through your head and into your brain it is nowhere near as bad because that's how i would take them back in the day i, I would try and bump snap bump out of them but like nowadays they're just they're, they're just such a um they're just so taboo you know it's yeah. almost you couldn't do it because of, of all the blowback and i am not encouraging that you do that i am just talking about the discussion of unprotected chair shots so as far as it goes i will answer your question legitimately now that i have discussed this a little bit I, I would probably say no. I don't think anyone would offer to do it. But if we were going to do it, I don't think anything beneficial would come out of it. So I would I would say no. And I would say, let's be creative and think of something else to do. Well, we like to educate here on the extreme life of Matt Hardy. So I just thought that was an interesting little education lesson for today's generation of workers, something to take from that, perhaps. But, so, but you're, you're, you're right, too, John. I know there are so many people, just like you say, they, they look back at that and it's hard for them to look yeah. at. I mean, it, it really bothers them. And, and I get that. And I get that people have different perspectives. I think one of the most, one of the best discoveries I have made in my life is just understanding how people have different opinions. And because I might be set in a certain way, I can understand why someone else believes something different. And I'm accepting of that. And I hope they're accepting of my opinions as well. You know, but I 100% understand why people cringe with that, especially because it looks so brutal. And you know, if something goes bad about it, it can be really, really bad, especially extremely detrimental, uh, detrimental to long-term health, especially man, like brain conditions and CTE and whatnot. Man, as, as, as a former sportscaster, I still do some sports casting, but I even think back to the early to mid-2000s when a game like Madden is glorifying the hit stick, the big hits, right? Right. And right. you'd see these bone-crunching hits and people getting concussed in football and now when I watch a football game, if I see a guy get taken out by a big hit, I cringe. It's a, it's yeah. a total different shift in mentality. And I think it's a parallel line to what has happened in pro wrestling too. I cringe now when I see someone take a really bad, impactful bump. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, too, I, I feel like now we're just, we're all so, so much more cognizant and aware of the effects of those things, you know, because I'm sure 20, 25 years ago when someone in football would run across the field field and hit someone and knock their helmet off and knock them out you're like oh shit that was amazing you know right now i feel like humanity has gotten better as time's gone forward anyway and we we we, we kind of give a shit about other people a little more most people do and and, and it's like you, you see that and you're like oh you know it's like cringy because like this person's gonna have really bad effects in their real life because of this yeah. you know so that's why it stands out totally agree one other fun note i want to mention before we get into the match here january 21st so two days before this match, you and Jeff defeat Michael Hayes and Terry Gordy at Oklahoma Pro Wrestling. What the hell? I mean, this is so cool. It's awesome. You're working with your mentor yeah. and 
Terry Gordy, this is iconic tag team versus an up and coming tag team in Oklahoma. How do you guys get permission to work a show like that? And what are your recollections from that? Um, that, that, that was amazing. It was uh, some sort of deal. It was a deal in Oklahoma, if I'm not mistaken, uh, through JR. So obviously he was the head of talent relations still this time. And then Michael Hayes was obviously a pretty important in the office. He was starting to gain power. And it had just worked out where we could work this event. And then Terry Gordy was going to be able to do it. And for Jeff and I, to wrestle the Freebirds, who like we grew up watching, and they were also, you know, not as much the world class Freebirds, but like the NWA Freebirds of Jimmy Garvin and Michael Hayes. That was one of my favorite teams. My first gimmick of High Voltage was kind of based out of the Freebirds. That I, they were, uh, there was a lot of Freebird in High Voltage, especially my original entrance and whatnot. So it was a huge honor for us to go out there and get to work Michael and Terry and Terry, you know. Bless his heart. He he was uh, in pretty bad shape at that time, and it was right when he was towards the end of his in-ring career in several capacities, you know. But he went out there, and we got to have a match with him, and we tried to keep it simple. Jeff and I, we did the the flipping and flying, and and they were the free words, and it was a very fun match, and it was such an honor to do. It was one of those things you never thought you would do, but we got to do it. Did Serge moonwalk or no? uh no he didn't uh once in a while we joke around with michael hayes and do some moonwalking but jeff had a much better moonwalk than me okay gotcha all right let's move on to madison square garden here uh, from the observer i want to bring out this this note because i i thought this was really fascinating he's talking about the main event of cactus jack and triple h he says jack and helmsley delivered a street fight that was about as good as such a match could be but also finished asking the same questions about the future direction of wrestling where more weapons, blood, and injuries are necessary to satisfy a growingly desensitized audience. You guys being in a table match earlier in that show, playing right into that motif there, what are your assessments when you hear a statement like that? Uh, there's a lot of truth into it. A lot of wrestling fans were starting to get desensitized, but I mean, times were changing. And also during the 90s, that's like the attitude era that's kind of like when the cat came out of the back as far as the whole cave vape thing and we started being a lot more honest about the inner workings of our industry and then once fans got the internet you know as we're going into the 2000s and there's a lot more information that is accessible and once again newsletters are much more common in this juncture people want to see different different things they want to see you know innovation and creation so that's like what we were doing and there were many times i will tell you where vince McMahon himself would have meetings with talent and he'd want to scale things back and get back to telling stronger stories that have really good, you know, uh, like, like, like a core theme of whatever the story may be, as opposed to like crazy physicality and bumps and, and taking risk and also build greater characters. And, and there is something to that because human beings, once again, aren't meant to be thrown down on wooden steel night after night, after night, after night. And now there's just so many risks and so many, interesting and cool things that are done in wrestling but at the end of the day you can't keep up in the entity because we are human beings we're flesh and blood you know so at the end of the day there has to be a story and an entertainment aspect that is what hooks people as opposed to like the physicality and continuing to escalate risk and and taking chances the show drew a sellout of 19,231 fans at msg 16,629 were paying with a gate of $1,142,540. It's the sixth largest live gate for a pro wrestling event ever in the U.S. at that point. And it sets the record for the country's most famous wrestling arena, Madison Square Garden, breaking the WrestleMania 10 mark of $960,000, which Very is cool. 
pretty insane. They also sold almost $160,000 in merchandise. Now, there was a, a little interesting discretion here is that there was a telephone number outage that made it impossible to order the show in the hours leading up to the event, which may have actually hurt the buy rate a little bit, which is really fascinating. But at the time, they're also doing the replay. So I'm sure some fans caught up on it at that. So I just threw a lot of numbers at you. And that's important because we talked money in episode one. When you're doing sure. a huge house like this, is the expectation that you're going to get a good payday? Because after what happened with the No Mercy payday, I have to imagine that you're more adamant about making more here, given what you're putting your body through. Has the mentality on you guys changed as a draw? Because you said JR initially said, well, you're not the one selling the pay-per-view, but now we're a few months later and it feels like a table match might be a big deal here. Right. Uh, yeah. I mean, we were, we were definitely more cognizant of that, you know, and we realized there was a little more equity in the tag team name of the Hardy boys and Matt and Jeffrey, obviously coming off that, tag team ladder match and they trusted us and they promoted us very strongly to be in this tag team tables match because they knew we were the guys for the job, you know, and we were interacting with the Dudleys and we went on second on the show, if I'm not mistaken, we were still obviously not like a main event uh, slot or anything, but we knew that, you know, we should be compensated pr pretty well for this, you know, especially if we pulled it off and we like killed it and people are going to order replays because of our match as well. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford Anything, wherever you listen. This is your first TV match ever at MSG, your sixth time working there overall. We hear all the time about how this is the mecca of sports and entertainment, Madison Square Garden. Is, is working the garden like what, you, what people say it is? Is it that important for guys to check off on their resume? Uh, it is. I mean, working, working the garden is a huge honor. And the very first time, which we get to do that earlier on when we were in tights and whatnot, we got to work the garden. Uh, obviously, it's something you check off your bucket list. So that was a very huge honor and like a dream fulfilled to wrestle in Madison Square Garden. But then as time goes on, it's cool wrestling there because usually it's a pretty good payday. But like if you're just getting in and out of the city, it is the biggest hassle that there is. So that was one of the more aggravating points about working at MSG. You know, you'd have to park across the street. You have to cross the street. There's hundreds of fans outside typically at this time, you know, and just getting in there, the locker rooms were tiny. They were very small. It like wasn't a comfortable locker room or environment and it was MSG, but just like getting in there was more difficult. Hotels were expensive. It was hard to find hotels, traffic. You never knew what that was going to be. You know, that, that was a guessing game because it might take you 15 minutes to get there. It might take you an hour and 15 minutes to get there. You never know in New York city. So that is one of the trickier parts of working in the garden. Whenever we'd see it come up in our schedule, once you're there and you're done and you walk through the curtain and you're performing in front of the garden, it's the coolest thing ever. But the process of getting there and actually working it was a bit of a challenge and sometimes uh, very frustrating. So what's amazing about how hot everything is at this time is you guys actually ran two house shows in the three months prior to this, including yes. one just a little more than a month before. So you're able to sell out MSG like that. We just talked about the buy rate and the gate. 
what is your payday looking like specifically for this table match here? First and foremost, that's crazy. There were three shows there in the course of a few months. That's insane. Like thinking about business, how hot it was then, which is great, but it's crazy. So our payday for this match was $7,500. So obviously we got more than we were initially paid for the tag team ladder match. And I know we, we were happy with this amount because I feel like we, uh, you know, obviously got more. They thought more of us. And I remember we also got a, we were able to have an interaction with JR about this. And, and basically we were learning more about how the whole salary and, and payday scheme works. Basically, you know, you have X amount of dollars that is allotted to pay all the talent in the show. And then they break it down into certain percentages based on kind of like where your match falls in the hierarchy. And our match was given uh, 30 grand. So then that was split between four people, obviously, because there were four people in the match. So it was 7,500 each. So, in the big scheme of things, we were pretty happy about that. And we were pretty sure we were going to get a WrestleMania spot following the tag team ladder match and the tag team table match. So we were cool with that 7,500 then. So we're talking about a $2,500 raise from what you were initially yes. put out for the ladder match, but yes. ultimately less than the ladder match. Cause you got the bonuses afterwards. Yes. So yes. ultimately a little less, even though you're working Madison Square Garden, I find that very interesting. Yes. So, you're planning out the match. You have, but also too the the majority of that uh, that we're getting paid on these pay per views. The house wasn't in it as much. The majority of that came from the pay per view buy rate and what kind of revenue and profit came in from the pay per view. Got it. That was the talent level more than anything else. But I mean, that was a big pay per view too. It was Royal Rumble. But I know you said there was an issue where maybe couldn't as many people as possible seen it because of some sort of number outage or whatever, which I wasn't aware of, you know, but the bigger pay-per-views usually uh, used to offer bigger paydays as well. Good caveat there. So you've got massive expectations for this match coming off the ladder match. You guys are working to set it up. And then I don't know if anyone knows this story. So this might be the first time that we're telling this year, but a little hour, a little less than an hour, more than an hour before you're supposed to head through the curtain, you get a message from Gorilla and your match has been cut shorter for time. What do yes. you remember about this? What kind of effect did it have on the preparation for the match? And how much does that increase the nerve level? Yeah, I, I remember, if I'm not mistaken, and I feel pretty good about this upon talking to everybody, we had initially 17 or 18 minutes for this match. I want to say the tag team ladder match had 17 minutes, if I'm not mistaken, roughly 17 or 18 minutes around the same time. And we had the same amount of time as what the is what was allotted for the tag team tables match. So this 17 or 18 minutes, we heard a few minutes, maybe 30 minutes before the show started, that we were going to have our time cut. We were going to lose either four or five minutes. And I think we ended up with 13 minutes of everything. 13 minutes compared to 17 or 18 minutes is a huge difference, especially when you are constructing these different apparatuses with tables and, and, and stairs and, you know, go fighting into the crowd and getting up on balconies and whatnot. So we knew like, Whoa, we're going to have to like do something different. Like we can't, we have, what we have is definitely set up for 17 or 18 minutes worth of content. We feel pretty good about that, but now we have 13 minutes. So I remember having a little group meeting, and I, I remember throwing this idea out. I, I, I may have been the one who said it, if not me, probably Bubba. And I said, guys, I think we should keep everything we have. We should hustle. Uh, maybe you guys can come to the aisle and meet us. 
you know, do your promo as fast as you can, Bubba, and let's burn through everything we have. And if we don't sell as much as we should, fuck it. Let's go. Let's get our shit in. This is a night for us to make ourselves like we've worked very hard and we've earned this. And fuck it. We're going to burn through this shit and still do everything that we've done. And we're going to fucking become stars tonight. That was our mentality. And we, we all agree. Let's do it. Let's rock and roll. It's amazing. 20 plus years later, let's get our shit in. It's still a calling call, a calling <laughs> for all wrestlers. So I love that. That's great stuff there. Really interesting insight. You're up second. You got a tough act to follow. Taz debuted, gave Kurt Angle his first ever loss. Massive pop, huge reaction. Do you have any recollections of that? No, I, I, I don't remember that match, obviously, because we were still going over stuff, stretching, mm -hmm. getting ready, whatever. So, no, I, I didn't even, I don't even know if I ever watched that match back. I remember mm -hmm. hearing like, oh, man, they had a, they had a, a great opener. Yeah. You know, and the opening match is an extremely important match. And especially Vince and WWE, they always put on a, a great match to open the show because that's the spot I love being in. Because a lot of times the opening match kind of sets the whole tone for the pay-per-view. So I remember hearing they had a great match. It was a, a very good deal. So we were just ready to go out there and, and follow it up strong. Yeah, you got a tough act to follow here. You guys and Terry get a backstage interview with Michael Cole. Jeff says that Terry's not joining you guys. It's going to be super violent. She needs to stay back there. You say the Dudleys are extreme. You're not supposed to even be there, but you are. And you're going to put the Dudleys through tables or you're going to die trying. Great way to set the stage here. The Dudleys are the first ones out. They cut a pre-match promo shitting on New York City, which is kind of weird since they're both from the area. They get some good heat, though. They, this, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure talking to Bubba, too. And, I, and I, I thought this, and he reinforced my thought. Vince was adamant because we'd ask about cutting the promo uh, just so we'd have more time in our match, obviously, so we could get uh, to our stuff quicker vince was adamant about doing it because he didn't want to take a chance on them getting cheered because they are from new york mm. you know uh he, he didn't want them getting cheered because there are two guys from new york over two hillbillies from north carolina down the road the new yorkers could have definitely you know could have seen it that way it, it, it's a possibility you know even though we were pretty over at that time they new yorkers love their own no doubt about it well, it's a fair point because they also say that john rocker is their hero it's like i said time capsule talking about this stuff that's the former Braves pitcher who made a ton of homophobic comments. He mocked people of color and then he shit all over Mets fans. So I thought that was a choice to call him uh, the hero. Bubba, I think, even said that he should be the mayor of New York City. So that is going to get you some heat, no doubt about that. But I, I just was going to ask you, why, why do you need the promo? I think that's good to establish that. So we're off to a quick start here. They meet you at the ramps, like you said. We're off to the races. Yes. And, JR and, and once, once again, we had we had changed that up where we were initially going to come in the ring, do our entrance, but just meet us in the ramp because that's going to save us 30 seconds. Like, yeah. I mean, we, we're literally trying to save every 20 and 30 seconds that we can throughout this match. Well, JR reiterates the rules of this, and this is a little different than some of the rules we see today, that both people have to be put through the tables to win and they're not eliminated. So did, did you find that confusing, John? So the way they described it was not great. I understood what they were trying to say, but it was not thoroughly explained because they were rushed for time. I mean, they didn't give any sort of preface to this at all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I'll say this. Uh, I am responsible for that premise. That was my idea. I wanted to be able to put both members of the teams through table, uh, through table, so we could also miss some stuff. And it had to be, you had to offensively both members of the opposing team through a table. 
with an offensive maneuver because I remember that would give us the opportunity not only to break a couple tables, but we could break several tables that way. That way you're going to get a minimum of three table breaks and then any misses you have, uh, those don't count against you. So I knew it would like up the excitement and also give us a whole lot of other tools to play with as far as telling a story. So that that that, that was me. I, I was able to, to pull that one off because I don't think that rule's ever been done again. I think that's the only time they ever utilized that. Yeah, and I, I, I had no issue, Matt, with like the idea of you having to put someone through the table. What I didn't like about it was that the person could be put through the table and then continue in the match that they weren't eliminated. But I understood the reason yeah. you did that was to almost make it like a two out of three falls match, more or less, uh, just with with tables instead. Yeah, I mean, it'd almost be like if there was a like a, if there was a tag team match uh, and both teams keep going, but you have to pin both guys mm -hmm. individually to win the match. It was kind of like my mindset behind it. And and really, when when I was thinking about it, I was just trying to think how can we give them as much action as possible. And like show our stuff because like we were able to do this with the tag team ladder match and it it, it really gave us a, a kick in the ass and a big boost professionally and you know also made us into like bigger superstars so how, what can i do to do that here and that was my yeah. mentality well and uh and, and those guys were down with it too and it it, uh, it ended up uh producing some pretty chaotic scenes chaos is the word because this yes. thing is chaos you guys are working so fast Bubba hits a Bubba bomb like 20 seconds into this match and then he, this was so dangerous oh my god that's the first spot that's the opening spot Bubba yes. bomb. he tries to Irish whip Jeff into a backdrop through the table you quickly flip the table but Jeff gets so much air that he actually clips the stand of the table with his head in midair the crowd audibly are gasped. you sure did, did he hit the table there was a sound because I was, I had to watch it like five times, and I don't think it hurt him. It was fine. I think he just like yeah. skimmed the side of the the stand. The crowd audibly gasps when this happens. Uh, I, I, are... I, I, I I don't think he hit it. I, no? I think that it was okay. turning it over. We'll have to go back and we'll have to do an instant yeah. replay and see. But I mean, but I'm not sure. But it, it was it was done at the last second, and that was our idea. It was amazing. And, it, it was and, amazing. And it was one of those things. I definitely had to turn the table over because if I didn't, someone would have been someone would have been hurt. You know, it was a, a, a an interesting spot that, that required perfect timing. Well, and there's so many elements that can fall through. And that's kind yes. of the story of all these gimmick matches. To me, it looked like he hit it. I could be wrong. I tried to watch like five times. We'll get producer Josh to take a screenshot of the moment. We'll have to yeah. Yeah, do a yeah. little instant replay there. Uh, yeah, let's do that. Do that, Josh. Thank let's you, Josh. Josh let's is call it the truck. Josh, help us out. <laughs> Josh is an unsung hero of this podcast. So we very much appreciate all his work there. He'll help us there. Uh, so Jeff does a tope onto Bubba. Big reaction there. You're working so quickly. I'm I'm hoping that everyone is able to stay safe at this point. So vicious chair shot from Jeff to Bubba. That gets a gasp, unprotected. Jeff runs the rail. We know what's coming, and so did Bubba because he gets the table up in front of him and throws it at Jeff. It's innovation, but oh boy, this is a lot going on. I, uh, I actually, just to, once again, make sure I was right, uh, Jeff would call that the RTC. Whenever he would jump on the guardrail and run, it was called run, run the curb, RTC. That, that was the, the inside name for that terminology. And I just, uh, once again, confirmed that with him that that was right. I, I, I remember that, but I just want to make sure. And uh, one of the funny things about that is like when you see Jeff run, the guardrail run the curb the rtc and jump into the table and bubba throws the table on him and it's very impactful because bubba brings it and bubba would always always definitely bring it but when you see jeff hit it, it he does it perfectly because like 
is right there, but also he throws his hands so hard to the table. Boom. And like, it's like something I've said in the past, like it's like aggressive survival. That's like sometimes in wrestling, you know, a, a bump is coming or something is, and you just really have to absorb it and you have to do what you have to do to make sure that you don't get hurt or injured. And he threw his hands and batted the table back so hard. And it's like aggressive survival. Wham, he hit it. And it also drove the leg of the table back into Bubba on that too, which was, which was a, an interesting scenario. Once yeah. again, inanimate objects, you never know what's going to happen. And the noise it makes is huge. It yeah. resonates yeah. throughout the arena too, when that happens. So you guys are just moving so quick here. And we're, guys, doing, we're all this stuff we're doing has never really been done before. Too. No, we're, we're doing all new stuff. You know, an audience is looking at this with green eyes. They've never seen it before. You guys double superplex Bubba, but Devon moves the table at the very last second. I thought that was really well done. You yeah. say, fuck it. You get a ladder. So I was curious by bringing a ladder into this unadvertised. Is this a way of you guys establishing yourselves further as like the ladder guys? Absolutely. Okay. That is absolutely the story we were telling with that. And that was the reason. I, I, and I, I feel like we had to kind of go out of our way to, to get that spot cleared, to utilize a ladder. Because sometimes in WWE, they'd also go like, oh, well, you have a tables match. Jesus Christ, you have tables and you're going to break multiple tables. Why do you need a ladder? Why do you need a chair? Why do you need this? Why do you need that? And, you know, I, I think I sold them on it because, like, you know, we became famous because of that tag team ladder match. Mm -hmm. And, like, you know, the ladder could be like our thing. If this is a notice qualification match, why wouldn't we? pull out a ladder if there was one there and it, and it worked out pretty good as we used it for other spots as we're going to talk about right now in essence that kind of makes this the first tlc match a lot of people think of wrestlemania 2000 the triangle yeah. ladder match but this is the first time we're seeing tables ladders, and chairs it's the first time all three components are in a match and i never thought of it that way until i watched the match back last night before we taped this and right that was cool now i want to get into the psychology because i love when you talk about wrestling psychology a match like this is totally built on teases. We've just seen two great teases. You flip the table to get Jeff out of the way of danger. Devon right. moved the table to get Bubba out of the way. How do you strike a balance of teasing too much versus not enough? I think a lot of it comes with, with Tom. I mean, I feel like if we'd had more time in this match, we would have done more teasing of like getting tables in the ring. But we had to, we had to, you know, that, that wasn't happening. We didn't have enough time. Uh, I, I think you, you want to do as many teases as you can, or as many teases as appropriate with the time you're allotted, you know, and in this, we knew that we had to move through things pretty quickly. So we felt like if we did get tables in the ring, even though we didn't tease getting them in the ring, we just got them in the ring immediately because we had to, because of our time constraints. But once they were in the ring, we teased, someone's about to go through a table, but we move the table or, you know, the table slipped or whatever happens with the table, someone moves, you know, these are the teases that we utilized until we really got to breaking and crashing tables hard. Basically with the time allotted, that's kind of how we budgeted how much we could tease things. Gotcha. And I think in, in, in any match, I think teasers are important because it builds anticipation for what you're ultimately going to get to, especially if you do it uh, at a good pace and it's a very easy story to follow. And that's what we talked about last week with Hangman Page and the Buckshot Lariat, too. So uh, yeah. all through the generations here. All right. Double leg drop on Bubba through the tables. You go off the ladder. Jeff comes off the ring. I thought this was awesome. And what I really appreciated about it was to me, and I could be wrong here, but knowing you, this kind of feels like a purposeful callback to SmackDown of what you did to Bubba through the table. You do the exact same thing, but this time off the ladder. Is that a conscious desire to do something like that 
Yeah, but even more as a as opposed to being my leg drop that I did on SmackDown. I mean, that was our finish too mm-hmm. uh, initially, and we still utilize it as a finish. That was a event Omega, you know, where Jeff would do the splash off the top turnbuckle, I would do the leg drop, and we would hit simultaneous simultaneously. Uh, he did it off the top turnbuckle, and I did it off a ladder. So we did our finish to Bubba basically on the floor in that scenario. And speaking about all the unprotected chair shots, is I think Bubba took the most. Also, whenever Jeff hit the table a split second earlier, and we talked about this, we were going to try and make sure our timing was, you know, as impeccable as it could possibly be. But Jeff hit a split second before I did, and the table started cracking, and then I hit the leg on Bubba. Uh, that I, that knocked Bubba out for a little bit. Oh, did he, it? He was he was not cold for a few seconds. Like his exact words when I was talking to him today, I was like, yeah, I know it knocked you loopy for sure. He said it killed me. <laughs> and he said like for a few seconds i was kind of going in and out like black so he definitely it, it rocked his world quite a bit wow but the biggest positive of that is that he had time to to sell and like get his wits about him because we we're doing a lot of stuff with Devon directly after that but yeah it did it was a risky spot as it was anyway taking the chance of hitting him with the leg drop and the splash at the same time and and almost back in that day it was just like no one would think twice about that well fast forward the clock 20 years later the first thing people would think about is like, is this going to knock someone out or is this going to injure someone? I'm, so, I'm holding my head here, Matt, because right after this, as you guys are setting up a contraption, JR yeah. says at that moment, he goes, and he like makes light of it because it just, it was how we talked about it back then. He makes light of it. He's like, Bubba Ray probably concussed right now. And now you're telling me here that he was totally out. He, 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 he got, he got knocked loopy for sure. I don't know if he totally lost conscience consciousness, but he definitely like was going in and out and he was like fighting to stay conscious. Wow. Uh, it, it rocked him. And obviously, I mean, that's understandable, especially with all the impact coming down on you. On top of that, there's a table that is breaking as well, which makes, you know, our weights also land at different times. Yeah. Um, and, 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 and I feel like it's one of those things where JR does talk about and almost makes light of it, but like, he's trying to tell a story and that's his sure. job as the commentator. And that's what he's doing. And it's, it's so weird. One thing that, that is frustrating to me, I would say now frustrating is a good word, is sometimes when people look back in that context and they get upset about that, but you have to understand that's how things were done mm-hmm. in that day and age. And it was the standard. We weren't doing anything wrong morally, or we weren't trying to injure someone or, or try and do something that's going to have, have a negative effect on this person. I mean, that's why like there's some things that are probably happening now that 20 years down the road are going to be viewed differently. And you have to remember how people think and act and what they know at that current time in that current stage, you know, you can't hold something against somebody else that happens 20 or 25 years later. Yeah. I need to make clear. I, that's not me shitting on Jr. That's no, me no, no, saying no. in hindsight, it ages yep. so poorly, but yeah, yeah. in yeah. context of the moment, you're absolutely right. Back then it was a concussion is like just getting a bruise. You pop an Advil and you're back in there. It was totally hundred percent. It, it was viewed totally differently. So yes, you totally. guys, you guys set up this contraption with the steps and the apron, you get a table across it. Uh, you go to the top. We know what's happening here. No one home. Devon gets out of the way. Jeff shoots out like a bullet with a suicide dive through his own table. Uh, I need some perspective here. I've never been put through a table. Thank goodness. Is it worse to go through a table on your own or is it worse to go through a table when you're landing on someone? Um, there's not a huge difference. Okay. I don't think uh, a lot of it just kind of depends on like how far you fall once you get past the table sometimes. Uh, there's not a huge difference in between those two things. And even that spot, it goes so fast. And when I was talking to Bubba earlier today, once again, he said that, that, that part of the match to him looked like a movie. 
it happened so fast. It almost like it's done with special effects. And I remember we were going to initially do the deal where I came off the top hit Devon rolls. He was going to take his time, sell very drastically and dramatically onto the other table. And then Jeff was going to go slower and then like hit him. But we're at that point where it's go, 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 go. Cause you remember we lost all that time in the beginning and we're moving through this match. So it was literally, I missed the leg drop off the top turn, but go through the table that is jacked up on the stairs. Boom. Devon moves out of the way, lays around the other table to avoid me. And then Jeff goes and he avoids Jeff. So it's just like, this bedlam, this scene of bedlam, you know, it's just total chaos, uh, total out of control. We like two maniacs out there going through these tables. And there was a spot that we did in a surge willow match at one point where Jeff dove at me in that same scenario where I was laying on a table that was laying up against the guardrails. And he actually balled up uh, almost like he was a, Oh my God. What is the, the arcade character that balls up like that and spins and Sonic, Sonic, the Hedgehog. Sonic, yeah. Sonic the Hedgehog. Jeff came through with a, a front flip out of the ropes and hit it. He balled up like Sonic the Hedgehog and he went through this table, like almost in a, in a circle. It was so weird. That's like the thing. table broke a little bit, but like a circle and his body was stuck in it. And Jeff told me today that was his mentality when he was doing that to Devon and he tried to emulate that. But I mean, the table broke just very clean and he fell down. Wow. <laughs> that was once again a throwback to an omega day that's where that spot came from where jeb dove out on to devon and missed and broke the table that's that, so that cool. spot was just was just so chaotic and it was just such a spot just just bedlam well the dudley set up a table in the ring on two ladders avalanche power bomb from bubba to you so that's a callback to what set all of this up here in this right. feud on monday night raw so we're even one apiece now and we continue on you're getting big reactions here I, I, I got to stop you quickly, John. Did you notice anything about that power bomb that Bubba did off the top rope to me? Because they had built that structure where they had put stairs in the ring and they had put the table legs on top of the stairs just to elevate the table to make it bigger. Yes. Did you notice anything about it? Trying to think back. He didn't, he didn't power bomb you through, like he didn't sit out through it. He just put you through it. And I'm trying to rack my brain here. There was nothing else that stood out to me off the top of my head though. The stairs were turned in where the stairs were there, where it was so much more of a margin of error. Oh, my goodness. Margin of error. The stairs shit. were meant to be turned outwards. Oh, they could have. And we talked about that down. before. And just in the in, in the heat of the moment, because if the stairs are outwards and you have like the end of the stairs and the table and there's much more room to take mm -hmm. the bump. But the stairs were inward where Holy it was a much shit. more smaller margin of error. And he put me through it perfectly. But like looking back in hindsight, once again, uh, that 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 could have went could have went sideways as well. Wow. Fortunately, it didn't. That is crazy. I didn't even think about that. So we go to the outside, more chair shots. The Dudley is using Usher to set up a table contraption. I thought that was funny uh, near one of the exits. They place you on it as Jeff starts to fight back. We're up into the balcony at this point. They're going through the crowd with Bubba and Jeff. Right. Is that something that you guys rehearsed earlier in the day, going up through the crowd like that? We we, we definitely went up there. Uh, I know Jeff went up there and he kind of looked at it and we kind of like tried to get a good gauge of how far he would want that table to be positioned for the Swanton. Uh, but they we definitely went up there and looked at it and had an idea of what was going on. We didn't we didn't do that without surveying the 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 scene there, the landscape. Well, Jeff hits a low blow on Bubba, more unprotected chair shots to the head. You bail out last second as Bubba timbers through a table, big spot. But since it's Devon that needs to go through, this match continues. We're still going on. You set up Devon 
And then here it is, Matt. This is the moment that everybody remembers from this match. Yes. Credit to Kevin Dunn and Vince McMahon's crew because this shot could not have been set up any more perfect. Iconic, man. Iconic. The word I was about to use was iconic. Jeff, shirt off, standing on the balcony of Madison Square Garden, posing in front of 19,000 fans. It's one of my favorite camera shots in the history of wrestling. (laughs) Right. Swanton bomb. You guys win the big one, and they are going nuts. Take me through this moment because my hair's just stood up talking about it. I, I know, as you said, they had set up. Uh, there were four tables that were sitting there because Bubba wanted to ensure there were enough tables that he would be safe or whatever. And I know they couldn't reach the table on the backside, and they were trying to move it. And they had the usher get it, get it, you know, whatever, commanding him to to help set up the structure of the tables. After Bubba Bubba bumped through that table, I remember for me, it was a little bit of a hassle to get around and get the one table that was clean because I think there was another table under the ring that we was our backup. We couldn't use it. We didn't think he would break all the tables and he did. And I pull another one out and there's one moment where you can even say, watch out, you know, very like adamant. You can tell I'm like in the moment. And I love, I love shit like that where I grab it. Somebody is by me and I'm like moving and I know we're on the clock. We're moving. I'm like, you got to get out of my way. I'm setting this table up. And you see me in a very controlling tone say watch out and i set the table up and i remember putting devon on it and i actually hold him down and i take my hand and i cover his eyes too where he can't see jeff at first and sometimes that was like i was notorious for doing that i felt like it was people were more comfortable for a moment if they didn't even see him coming you know all right here we go and it's funny i would do that to guys like regularly maybe that was like a rib i would do an intentional rib where i would hold them down as i'm holding them on the table but i would cover their eyes so they couldn't see it Trust me, trust me, guys. It's a lot easier if you can't see it coming. It, it'll, it'll be much less painful. Uh, and then Jeff came off and he nailed it perfectly. And he just, he nailed it perfectly. Let's take a time out here. And while we normally have a lot of fun on this show, this is a pretty serious topic. Life insurance, specifically Goliath life insurance. Let me give you a pro tip. We're all going to die. So before you get a visit from the undertaker, Think just for a second about what would happen if your family stopped having your income tomorrow with life insurance from goliathlife.com. What we're really talking about is protecting what you've worked so hard to provide for both you and more importantly, your family. You see, life insurance isn't about you. It's about those who matter the most to you. Sure. You do a great job taking care of them now, but who would do that if something awful happened to you? I just lost two friends in the last year and a half, one 42 with two kids, the other 46 who left behind a wife and three kids. Thank God they had insurance. And Hey, I hear you. Nobody wants to think or talk about life insurance, but think about this. You might not get in a car accident, but you have auto insurance. You might not get sick, but you have health insurance. So we'll protect our car and we'll even protect ourselves from like crazy medical bills. But will we protect our family? That's what life insurance means to me. Peace of mind. Goliathlife.com streamlines the life insurance purchase process by allowing you to get quotes from more than 20 carriers all at the same time and at the same place. Goliathlife.com. You'll do a fast and easy application and have multiple quotes within minutes. And oh, by the way, Goliathlife.com has solutions for every budget. And maybe best of all, you pick your terms and payments at Goliathlife.com. Once you pick your price, you can start the online application immediately and check this out. You can even schedule the medical exam to happen in your home. You don't even have to leave the house to do this. And yes, I have done this. I sent someone to my office. It was fast. It was easy. And it was unlike anything I expected. 
I got to skip the phone calls, the paperwork and the crazy invasive conversations, and even the multiple visits to the doctor's office that we all hate so much. Goliathlife.com makes buying life insurance simple. Goliathlife.com promises no hidden fees, no upsell, no hassle, hell, not even a phone call. Goliathlife.com is life insurance in your hands on your time. Get multiple quick quotes right now from the comfort of your own home and begin your application in a few easy clicks right now at goliathlife.com. So I think one of the most important things that you can possibly do is get a good night's sleep. And science tells us that the best way to achieve and maintain consistent deep sleep is by lowering core body temperature. Temperature controlled sleep? that restores testosterone levels, repairs muscles after a hard day's work, and improves cognitive function so you always start your day feeling sharp and alert. So I want to tell you about Chili Sleep. Now, Chili Sleep makes customizable climate-controlled sleep solutions that help you improve your entire well-being. Chili Sleep makes the Uller and Cube Sleep Systems hydro-powered, temperature-controlled mattress toppers that fit over your existing mattress to provide your ideal sleep temperature. You ever feel uncomfortable at night because it's too cool or too hot? That is no longer a problem. These luxury mattress pads keep your bed at the perfect temperature for deep sleep, whether you sleep hot or you sleep cold. These sleep systems are designed to help you fall asleep, stay asleep, and give you the confidence and energy to power through your day no matter what stands in your way. Imagine waking up and not feeling tired. I know that seems like a crazy concept, but chilly sleep can very much help make that happen. For an extra layer of comfort, they also make the Chili Blanket, the only weighted blanket that can also be paired with a control unit for the ultimate sweat-free sleep. Now, if you know me and you've been following me for years, I'm always tweeting about it and putting on social. I do not sleep well. At least, I didn't sleep well until I started using Chili Sleep products. These things help you get comfortable. I'm always tossing and turning, not anymore. So head over to chilisleep.com forward slash hardy to learn more and check out a special offer available exclusively for the Extreme Life of Matt Hardy podcast listeners and only for a limited time, that is chilisleep.com forward slash hardy to take advantage of our exclusive discount and wake up refreshed every single day. That's chili, C-H-I-L-I. To me, one of the most fun things about watching this match back, and I'm sure you didn't notice it or no one else noticed it, uh, it's insane me getting Jeff back into the ring. Some people well, may have noticed. It. I noticed it. I sure as hell did. So, 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 so tell me, please, I would love to hear your perspective on like what happened there. So when you, when he goes through the table, it's this yeah. big monstrous moment. I mean, they are going insane and yeah. you kind of pick his ass up and you are hauling his ass into the ring to get in there. You roll him in. And I said to myself, as you're doing this, why are you doing this in the first place? Do you need to celebrate in the ring? You're on the opposite side of the hard cam here, I believe. So maybe that had something to do with it. But it's what's important is context. Madison Square Garden has that setup where the entranceway is, it's not the big entranceway. It's in a small, like little, uh, what's, what's a tunnel almost. 
So you guys yeah, were on the opposite side of that. Yes. And that lent itself to this moment. So I, I just noticed that you hauled ass and you grabbed him and threw him in there to celebrate and get your arms raised. So tell me what you're about to say. Oh, I'm so glad. I'm so happy to talk about this. So Vince McMahon was adamant. He was adamant that he wanted his baby face team who just secured this new big victory in Madison Square Garden, this iconic venue. He wanted us in the ring with our hands raised. He said that, that that's the most important thing. You have to be in the ring with your hands raised. Jeff, now, my brother, he just feels things. He, he doesn't give a shit about structure. He's not good with Tom. That was never his gimmick. The gimmick with Tom was mine. We're out here. We're already battling the clock, you know, to get this match in. After Jeff goes through Devon on the table and we win the match and we're down there, we get a we get a hit from someone telling us the time, maybe the ref, I don't know. 20 seconds. Get in the ring. Vince says, get in the ring. I was like, fuck. Come on, Jeff. And Jeff's just still in the mode, totally selling, which he would have been. And I picked his ass up. I fucking drug him over as he's down selling. And I dumped him over the, the barricade. That's the most hilarious thing. I like throw him over the barricade like he's my opponent. <laughs> I dump him over the barricade. I get over there, pick him up, drag him into the ring because I know his mentality is like, dude, this was a huge bomb. I'm going to sell. So I drag him into the ring. We get in and we get the glory shot. We get that beauty shot of us holding our hands up. There's a big pop in the crowd. But I know Vince was adamant vocally adamant he said it multiple times i want my baby faces in the ring with their hands raised as the triumphant winners of this match and come hell or high water i was going to make sure that happened because i was going to be following his command especially because we were new and we were just starting to get over at that juncture so that's why i took jeff so it, i mean it was such a brisk quick moment of me picking his ass up dumping his carcass over like he's a dead body you know it was like weekend at weekend at jeffrey's you know he looked like bernie as i was throwing him in the ring get him in the ring and we hold up our hands and celebrate and whatnot looking back in hindsight if we had been told on the floor right after jeff landon crashed the table like 20 seconds uh and it's time to go home i i, I probably wouldn't have done that now uh, i would have probably been a little more defiant and i would have just Picked his, I would have picked him up and raised his hand there and we would have celebrated there in the crowd and the TV camera would have shot it. It wouldn't have been in the ring. But at that juncture, I was not going to risk pissing off the boss. I was going to follow the structure and the orders we had been given. So that is why I rushed him in the ring so quickly at that juncture. I knew it had something to do with getting the hard cam shot. It, it, I knew it had something to do with it, yeah. but I didn't realize it was that time. That's incredible. Because it, it had an immediate callback for me, WrestleMania 33. Jeff comes off that gigantic ladder you get the belts and then he just kind of gets right back up and rolls into the ring to celebrate with you. And it was all to get that glory shot. So yeah, that, yeah. that, that is really cool insight on Vince McMahon and Kevin Dunn there. So I like that. So, uh, man, it, it was, it was a spectacle. Dave Meltzer gives us one three and a quarter stars. It's the first time we ever see this kind of match. I, I thought given the time you pretty much did everything you could have possibly done. Now, you said you had 13 minutes here. The match itself goes 10 minutes and 18 seconds. So did you fit within the parameter you were given with the promo included? Did you guys hit the time? We were, I think we were a little heavy, but uh, reasonably heavy. You know, I think we went 20 or 30 seconds over oh. between the promo and then uh, me having a weekend's, weekend at Bernie's moment with Jeff and, and getting him into the ring and holding him up there to get the get the beauty shot. Yeah. I, I think we did pretty damn good. Yeah. What's the reaction in the back to the match once you get back there? Uh, it was very beloved people, people dug it. I'm sure there were people 
that also thought once again doing too much not selling enough going too fast and uh not for nothing they're not wrong you know but my agenda and all four of us our agendas were to get over and put ourselves in a position that we could make money for the company make money for ourselves and we were given that opportunity and our our uh, our job was to go out there and and create a spectacle do something that was has never been seen before do something that was a uh entertaining spectacle and that is what we accomplished well, after this match, they clean everything up and it's the Miss Royal Rumble bikini contest. So they picked a hell of a segment to follow you guys up. Oh, May Young, tell, May Young. tell me you're watching WWE without telling me you're watching WWE. <laughs> well, I, I watched this whole segment back after I did my notes for this match just because I had to. And it is, it is something. Mae Young came out, removed her top and was declared the unanimous winner of this from the wrestling observer after the Miss Royal rumble contest, they then aired a PSA announcement telling kids what the wrestlers do shouldn't be done on playgrounds. I'm not sure if they meant what the Hardys just did or what may young just did. Do you have any thoughts yeah. on that? Uh, both. <laughs> Don't do either of those. Don't do what we did at home. And definitely if you're a, an older lady, an older madame, don't do what May Young did either. Think of the children. Think of the children. That's all we got to say there. Uh, so the main event of this pre-rumble is Cactus Shack and Triple H. They tear it down. All-timer, four-and-a-half-star street fight. You guys play second in the Observer Pool for Match of the Night, so you guys made your impact. Uh, the Rumble itself is not a very good Royal Rumble. Your match was significantly more entertaining than that. So that's got to feel good at the end of that show that you guys make a pretty good impact, I imagine. Yeah, for sure. We were very happy with it, especially as frustrating as it was that we lost that time in the beginning. Uh, we we were all very glad that we decided to to burn through everything and just still do pretty much everything we had put out on the blueprint. And it, it worked. It worked very well. And that match, as we're talking about it right here now, I mean, that match was talked about for years and years and years and is still talked about. So we we obviously did something right. Yeah, well, let's talk about influence, because that's what we do here on The Extreme Life of Matt Hardy. What did this match do for the Dudleys, in your opinion? Because it continued your elevation as a unit to top baby faces in the company. But what do you think it did for the Dudleys? I mean, it, it definitely established them as uh, major tag team players in the WWE tag team division. And, and that was their whole goal. You know, they came from ECW and they wanted to be you know, a top tier tag team at WWE and they want to make as much money as possible. And for them, it was also a big deal because they were wrestling in MSG in this high profile match, both growing up watching so many matches in MSG. Devon told me when I talked to him yesterday over and over how nervous he was before this match. He just wanted to go right. He wanted to get through it. He was so nervous. He was so nervous because he knew this was their opportunity to kind of like kick down the door you know, and become a successful tag team in WWE. And fortunately it, it worked, you know, they became, they, it really changed their trajectory, you know, from being like on the rise to like rocket shipping. Mm. And with us as well, it continued our trajectory following the, the tag team ladder match. And as everyone knows, it leads to the triple threat ladder match at WrestleMania and eventually to the first TLC. So it was a, a, a very good step in helping to yeah. elevate tag team wrestling and also our all of the superstars. Yeah. And I think where people look back as at no mercy as the night that kind of made you guys, this is kind yeah. of the night that made the Dudley boys. Cause they did take that next step 
to the next Agreed. level. So, Agreed. And, and it was also one of those matches where regardless of who wins, both teams succeed. Mm-hmm. Both teams profit from it. You know, And if you tell a match, if you're in a wrestling match, especially now because so many people understand how our industry works, if you tell a match in the right context, then both teams can get over. It doesn't make a difference if it's the winner or the loser. They can both get over if there's a solid story and a solid performance from both teams. And that was definitely the case in this match. Both teams won, even though technically, you know, if you look at the record books, you know, Hardy's won, Dudley's lost. Both teams won in this match. Huge. I totally Uh, agree with you on that front. And they get over big. I had a friend who was in attendance and I asked him about this last night, the match. Just tell me what you thought. And he said, facing forward from my seats, Jeff jumped off the section, which was about 10 rows down and 30 feet to my left. I'll never forget it. The crowd was electric for all the spots. This match helped cement the undercard of the event as one of the most enjoyable in Rumble history, which was needed with a very mediocre Rumble match. And he he said that this was the moment where he knew that all the guys in this were going to be big time stars. And I think that's cool hearing fan reaction from 20 years ago. Uh, Does that sit with you at all? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, 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 that's, that sounds great and sounds correct. And and I, I, I'm hugely humbled. Uh, And it's just so gratifying that people look back at this match with such, you know, such, uh, such fondness. And it is, it's really special that, that our work will live on like that, you know, for forever in theory. From an education standpoint, you've given a lot of great notes because we like bringing the past to the present here on the extreme life. And you talked about uh, bringing psychology into tables matches with the T's and maybe some things that you would have done a little differently. But timing is the biggest lesson from this match, I feel like. What mm-hmm. would you give to the current generation of performers or people who are aspiring to be pro wrestlers in terms of advice about having to adjust a match on the fly when your time is cut a little shorter? Once again, if you're having to adjust a match on the fly because you have less time, I mean, don't don't pack everything in. I mean, and I'm not a good example to follow because we did on this scenario, but like you need to put enough content in that match where the story resonates and it makes sense and it's easy to follow. A lot of times in wrestling, the more simple stories are the ones that work the best because they're the easiest to follow. And it's nice when you have a detailed story like myself and Hangman where you can put complicated layers on things. But like as far as it goes in the ring, if you're telling a story, try not to do too much, you know, and save your, your biggest stuff towards the end when all your bells and whistles and your fireworks are going to be going off because that is what you're working the whole match for when it's all said and done. And I think with us, you know, we had our teases ultimately ended up being dropping each other with big moves early, putting tables in there and like being able to throw them out of the way and then having uh, building the match to where we had false finishes of like people going through tables and, and whoever was trying to do it missing, you know, and then ultimately our big bang was going to be that deal where Bubba took the big bump off the balcony, then Jeff did the swanton. Everything we did was building to that moment. And we tried to do it in a very specific way where we kept waiting the spots in our story, you know, considering the stakes that were with this match as to accomplish by this being a spectacle, we had to kind of like start in fourth gear <laughs> as opposed to like starting slow and working our way up. But, you know, one thing I would say to people that are having like a regular match, for instance, if you have time cut, you know, once again, go slow. You don't have to do everything every single match. There's going to be another match next week. There's going to be another match down the road. 
Well, we got a couple more minutes here, Matt, on the Extreme Life of Matt Hardy, and we like to get the fans involved directly every week. Hashtag Ask Matt. You ready to answer some questions here about this match? Yeah, man, let's do it. Bryant says, you mentioned on your first episode going over the ladder match at the warehouse in Stamford. Did you do the same for the tables match with the Dudleys or did you put the match together that night? And was the balcony spot your idea or an agent's idea? Uh, that's a great question. And no, we did not uh, go anywhere to a WWE warehouse or not didn't go to the venue the night before or anything. We only talked about that match earlier in the day uh, and everything was established, you know, from... 2 30 3 o'clock that day up to showtime that's when we talked about things and the balcony spot was of course jeff hardy's idea <laughs> brother nero always being an man. animator as we this stunt man jeff hardy wanted to do something off a balcony of course i think we made him a t-shirt quite frankly with all this stunt man <laughs> stuff so a little little stuff to go through there uh, ahmad asked a really cool question how much planning can actually go into these kinds of matches or are tables matches and ladder matches more like jazz where the finish is certain, but the road gets figured out as you go. I honestly think like something with a table match with these sort of time constraints, it is better if you have stuff uh, planned out spot by spot. It, you almost have to in, in theory, because like you have such a small window of time and, and these things take a lot more time because you're dealing with these inanimate objects and you're having to move them and you're having to erect them and set things up in different apparatuses. So you, you kind of got to know what you're doing. It's much, much harder to call on the fly a table match or a ladder match than it is to do a regular match, especially if you're on a pay-per-view and people are looking for a spectacle. And that's what we're going out there to present a spectacle. So yes, we had pretty much had to set up like, you know, step-by-step step how we're going to do this match. And Alicia asks our final question here. What was your favorite part of the match and why? I mean, looking back in hindsight, still my favorite part of the match is when I came off the top turnbuckle and tried to leg drop Devon through the table that was propped on the stairs outside and I missed. And he ro did two rolls over, landed on the table that was leaned up against the barricade like he was going to catch his breath. And here comes Jeff flying out like a silver bullet. And then he moves again and Jeff crashes through the table and we eat it. It's just, it, it's, it's like a movie scene, <laughs> that spot. It's just so amazing. It looks, looks like it's done with CGI almost. That, that's my favorite spot of the whole match. It's like so exciting and just so crazy and insane. And I feel like that spot kind of sums up what the Hardy Boys were during the WWE time, just chaos and, and bedlam and extreme. That's why now we have the extreme life of Matt Hardy because of moments like that. You're a fucking pro when it comes to segues and all that stuff. You're real good at this <laughs> shit, man. You're an amateur podcaster, but you've got this shit figured out a long time ago. So I, I had a blast going through this match, Matt. This is one of the very memorable matches from my childhood. And getting to talk with you about this is awesome. And the coolest part is... This is just one of so many from this iconic series that you have with the Dudley boys and Edging Christian. Yeah. And we're going to keep it going in the coming months here on the extreme life of Matt Hardy as we delve through the greatest story ever told with three tag teams over the course of a two year period of time. Awesome, awesome stuff. Thank you, everyone, for asking those questions. Hashtag Ask Matt every single week here on the extreme life of Matt Hardy. We'll get some more questions in for next week's episode. And Matt, next week, I know you are looking forward to this one. We are talking 
Michael P.S. Hayes, your boy, Mr. Freebird himself, and the man who perhaps more than anyone played an instrumental role in getting the Hardy Boys to the show. What can we look forward to in episode four? Uh, it's going to be a lot of fun. And I do. I have a lot of love and appreciation and respect for Michael Hayes. He undoubtedly taught myself and Jeff more than anybody else did in this industry. And he really, he really helped us uh, focus on our fundamental work and the fundamental aspects of this game as far as being successful. And we really owe him quite a bit. And we called him our wrestling daddy for the longest time. And he, and he really is. He was like our wrestling daddy. I always lean on his shoulder if we ever, you know, had a, had a, a question and we were looking for advice in which direction to, to take things, especially in a pro wrestling context. That episode is going to rule. It's coming to you next week here on the Extreme Life of Matt Hardy. I need you to think of a lot of good stories because I do the research for this show and there's only so much research I'm going to be able to do here. I need you to come <laughs> packed with stories about Michael Hayes. So I'm excited to hear what you bring to the table here, my friend. We're going to be fun. <laughs> okay. I'm not, I'm not concerned, quite frankly. Uh, but that does it for another edition here of the Extreme Life of Matt Hardy. The words have been spoken. We're so appreciative of all the response we've gotten on this podcast. Matt, anything else you'd like to add this week? No, once again, uh, thank you guys for tuning in. Uh, each and every week, more people tune in, more people are discovering the Extreme Life of Matt Hardy. And thank you for giving us those opportunities. I feel like if you invest your time in us, you're going to be happy with what you get. We're going to do our best to reward you with very great, entertaining, fun, educational content. Thank you guys for checking us out. And I'm just glad that Andrade didn't run in here and try to steal you from me because I see that happen on AEW. I'm a little uh, concerned I might be out of a job here soon, Matt. Well, Make sure to keep your door locked whenever you start podcasting with me. <laughs> I appreciate you, brother. We appreciate all of you. And we'll see you next time here on the Extreme Life of Matt Hardy. Thank you, John. See you guys.